at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have with me a person that I've known for quite a few years, but we haven't really had conversations about our lives. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with Dr. Laura Nimon, who is an associate professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapies, Therapy. And she's also a scientist at CHESS at UBC. Welcome, Laura. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I was excited because, as I said, like we, you and I have met for a long time now, and I don't think I know a lot about your personal life other than a few things here and there. So I want to get a little bit of the bigger story of who Laura was when she was little. Uh, who, was the people, who were the people around you who surrounded you and how did you grow up in that environment? If you can give me a, a visual picture of, of yourself growing up and what you were interested in in those years. Well, let's go back oh, to primary hey, school. Way yeah, back. back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm an islander. I'm from the west coast of Canada. I'm from Vancouver Island. Um, I grew up in Nanaimo, BC, which is a small city and community in the center part of the island. And I also spent a lot of time on Gabriela Island, which is a small Gulf island, about 4,000 people. Um, and that's a 20-minute boat ride from Nanaimo. So I, I grew up in both of those locations. Um, my dad was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Um, and my mom had trained as a nurse, but she gave it up temporarily to be a housewife and raise three children. So there's myself as the youngest. Um, and then I have an older sister and an older brother. Um, my dad Dad was really busy. He would he worked, you know, 55 hours a week and he was on call 60 hours a week. Um, my parents divorced when I was nine and then I moved to Vancouver. Um, my mom wanted to pursue a graduate degree um, in counseling psychology. So she later went on to become a professor of nursing at the University of Victoria, and she did that while raising three children as a single mother. Um, so that had a really big impact on me as a young woman to kind of witness that process of self-actualization. But in terms of my my experience of my childhood, it was a very happy childhood. Um, as I say, I had an older brother and sister, and we had a really obnoxious dog called Snuffles. <laughs> And that's like for another conversation, but um, no, and, we can learn a little bit about that. Tell me a story about your brother, no. sister, and your brother. About my brother and like, sister. Yeah, like a, a um, situation that you remember. Oh, I we were just we had so much fun together. But I think kind of as the youngest, they would tease me a lot. Um, like I had this favorite teddy bear called Pinky that I literally thought was like a person. <laughs> <laughs> I took him everywhere and he had a little place at the dinner table with like cutlery and a plate. And um and I remember one time 
my sister was being kind of mean and like tied him up by the neck with his little string around his neck and put him out the window. And I was just so devastated. So they teased me a lot. Um, but we had a lot of fun together. Like there was a lot of laughter in my family and um, we spent a lot of time outside. Like we weren't really allowed to watch television. So um I we spent a lot of time at the beach and um you know I was like spent kind of my time like swimming in phosphorescence and staring up at the stars and playing with sand dollars and making sand castles and a lot of my memory of my early childhood is just being kind of playing a lot with my siblings and a lot of friends we had a lot of friends um but spending a lot of time in nature and I think that when I, when I think back to my childhood, I think that had a really big um, impact on me. You know, I think I, I do remember my first memory, actually. Um, I think I was around two and it was of a slug, actually. I remember just staring at the slug and being totally fascinated and, you know, really fascinated by the texture of its skin and its color and the way it moved and just being completely fascinated. And I, I spent a lot of time like that as a child, just observing, observing the natural environment around me. And, and when I think back, I, I appreciate now as, as an adult um, living in a city too, like how special that kind of childhood was. It was really, really unique. And Gabriela Island, where I grew up at the time was um, very eclectic. Like it was full of artists and um, free thinkers and draft dodgers. Um, and it, fit a lot with the system of my family because in my family there are a lot of artists and healthcare workers and environmentalists and so on so it's just kind of uh also a really interesting social space to grow up in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and among those people because they have very diverse interests interests who were your heroes like beyond your your siblings or your parents did you have like a few people that you remember being oh my gosh those are who I aspire to be not really actually like I I can't really think of anybody that had that dominant of a presence in my life that I aspired to be like them but I was influenced more subtly I think by a lot of different people I was a competitive dancer and swimmer um, and I played the violin and so I was in you know fairly sort of intense environments in terms of those activities and I think my teachers had a big impact on me and kind of um, sort of the the expectation of excellence that I was involved in as a young child. I think back and I think, wow, that was pretty intense. Mm. Um, but, you know, so I think in some ways um, teachers might have impacted me, but it it was more on a, a kind of a subtle level than somebody in particular that stands out to me. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that expectations of excellence? What did it look like for you? It was, I, I was um, trained in violin by a woman in Nanaimo who played for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. I didn't really want to take the violin. I still don't really, <laughs> I, I feel badly if somebody, if people listening to this love the violin, but I've never really liked the sound. I find it kind of shrill and I didn't really want to take violin lessons, but my parents wanted me to because there was this amazing teacher in the city. And I, I always really actually wanted to play the cello, but I did go to all the lessons and they were, you know, I, ha I practiced every day and I performed, um, 
and and so it was a fairly kind of um I don't know if I'd say high pressure but it was sort of you know not it was there were high expectations I suppose and and then with with ballet too it was also a fairly elite dance studio and um there was just a lot of pressure I felt as a young woman kind of even on having a certain body like you know the way the poses that we had to do and the expectations um even for the way our body could kind of perform um certain dance moves was also quite an interesting experience in terms of um I, I guess the kind of uh, a pressure that can be placed on a young child right. so I had all of those experiences paired with a, a personal life that was very fun and playful and um and free really because as I said I did spend a lot of time just kind of running around very freely on the beaches. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. Like you experience at the same time kind of a, a very structured environment, uh, high expectations, and also a very free-flowing one. What do you make out of that seeming seeming dichotomy to me? Like what, what are the lessons that gave to you now that you are older that you can reflect on? I mean, I think in some ways it's a nice pairing of activities and um, and engagement in sort of uh, so I guess different expressions of self. And I think that we really need balance in our life, like as an adult, even you know, as a professor, associate professor and a scientist, it's fairly rigorous and the expectations are quite high and it can be involved kind of high performance in different situations. And so as a person, and I've never thought of it really until I've just, you've asked this question. I, I also try to balance out my life with a lot of fun and friendship and time out of nature and time with my family and other activities. So Um, and I, I do that maybe unconsciously, but it seems to really work well for me. I can't imagine a life where it was sort of buried in work and all that kind of um, pressure that comes with that. Yeah, that's intriguing because now it makes sense to me because I know you really like nature. I know you do yoga and you love yeah. art too. So now I understand where it comes from. Like it's, it's your way of balancing out the high expectations of academia. So It is. And I think when I find myself out of balance, I realize it quickly and go, okay, I'm going to kind of go to an art gallery today, or I'm going to practice yoga, or I'm going to just bring myself back to more um, sort of a, a, a balanced sense of self and an expression more of who I really truly am. Right. And I okay. think that's really important. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, but you just said something, when, whenever you, you find yourself out of balance, what is the feeling that you get that tells you, ah, I'm getting out of balance. Is this a physiological feeling or what, what, what is the alert mechanism that you have? I think, yeah, maybe physiological, like I start to feel tired or I'm not sharp as sharp as I could be cognitively. I'm, I'm not performing well, I guess. Like it's sort of a realization that, wow, I need to slow down. I need to recover and rest. And I know how to do that. And, mm -hmm. and I know the things that I need to Do to help me feel back in balance so that I can just um, be better at everything that matters to me. And right. so I think it is kind of uh, more uh, physiological for sure. But that requires a lot of self-awareness because like taking to me, like if I feel 
I'm not performing well, but I gotta get going. Keep pushing because eventually you have to do it. But like the ability of being self-aware of, okay, I gotta stop. That's, mm-hmm. That takes skill. What do you think gives you that in addition to your childhood experiences? Yoga maybe or some kind of activities? Yeah, I think yoga, I practice yoga very regularly. And I, um, I've done that like for 20 years, even before it became popular. Um, and so I do do that. And I think yoga really helps me get into my body mm-hmm. and understand how my body is feeling. And instead of being kind of detached from it and pushing hard, and then actually that works against high performance, I guess, because right. when you're tired um, and you're feeling burnt out, you you can't, you know, you're not creative, you can't think as sharply, mm-hmm. you start to literally run out of steam. And so even if I've been like writing a grant and there's a de- you know, deadline looming and I'm really tired, I know that I'm not as sharp as I could be, I'll take a break and, and take time out and then come back because then I know that I'll, I'll just be stronger. So it is like, yeah, I think kind of things like yoga have really helped me um, understand that part of my system, I suppose. And, um, and I, you know, I sort of use that insight into how I'm feeling in my body. And then also my intuition, I think like, okay, it's, you know, if I keep pushing, this doesn't feel right to me. I think that it's better for me to kind of take a pause. Yeah, that's, that's great. So let's go back again. So that was your childhood. When the time came to choose your career, you were in high school and you were thinking, well, first of all, what were your favorite topics in, in high school? Um, In high school, you know, I was just... I was a really social young woman. Like I wasn't a terribly into academics. And I I think a lot of my high school friends would have a really good laugh with that question because I was like really silly and a lot of fun. And I really kind of um, in grade 12 put my head down and studied a lot um, because I wanted to get into university. And, um, and so then I really applied myself and I I really excelled. Actually had a lot of things that surprised me, even at chemistry, um, which surprised me physics. I did really well in French. Um, I really loved English literature and, and I started to kind of love learning. And maybe it was a maturity thing and it was sort of the time in my life to really do a deep dive into all of that. Um, But I really, yeah, I really, I loved all subjects actually, but I think I really did love writing in English um, and uh, history and um, geography. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I did a lot of sports too. So I was just, I was really busy. So grade 12 was kind of the aha year. It was a, yeah, it was an aha year and then realizing like, oh, I, I can really, really do well academically. Like it's just kind of a neat understanding of self that I really hadn't tapped into because I wasn't very interested in that. And so it was like I was at that age too of finding myself and you're kind of separating from your family and your friends more and like it's a journey of understanding self. So I think that was like an important insight into who I am. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to university and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So and I think I've told you this in conversations. I traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I went to lived in Ecuador for a year and I traveled through Peru and Colombia and Venezuela. And I went to Australia and Fiji and the Cook Islands and Italy, Spain, Cuba, United Arab Emirates. Like I just went all over the world and I, I, I worked in those settings to pay for the, to, to pay to have that kind of experience, but also just to get to know people who live in these cultures um, and, and just understand the world more, just spread my wings. Um, and I think that was a really important part of my own uh, personal development as well. Yeah. How did you start that? Because I, I find that so awesome. I wish I could have done it. Um, the <laughs> idea of traveling after high school and doing that stuff. What, what, which was the first place you went? How did you find that job? And how did you start moving throughout? So, so I went to Australia with three girlfriends who were from in my high school. And we were all you know, two of us were in university and one wasn't. And we, I took off the second term. We went, so we went first to the Cook Islands and then Fiji and Australia. And the plan was to just find work when we were there. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up finding a job on a banana plantation. Okay. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Flipping bananas. Yeah. And um, yeah, living in a tent and mm-hmm. um, and working on farms. And that was like, a lot of fun actually and it would give us enough money to keep traveling and then we would stop in another kind of like area where we could do that and so we worked a bit on like um orchards and stuff but because I think of my love of nature like one of one of the other girls ended up working in a bar in Sydney but because of my love of nature I really was keen to get out into with the kind of farming areas and and another friend of mine was too so we kind of broke apart and we did that Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. From, from Australia, where did you go? South America was next. Then I moved. Then I went to first down to South America on a backpacking trip through Venezuela, Colombia, um, and and Ecuador, and then went back, did some more university, and then decided after university to move to Ecuador. And I I had secured a job beforehand as an English teacher in Cuenca, which is a small city I'm sure you know of in the Andes. And we I wanted to live somewhere that wasn't um, populated by North Americans. And it was sort of a smaller city. And so I went and lived there and lived with another Ecuadorian um, and worked with Ecuadorian people and taught English for a year. And it was just an incredible um, experience. Okay. How, how did your family react to that? Especially your mom being a single mom. <laughs> they were really cool about it. And mm-hmm. I just think, I always look back and I think, gosh, like, they, I mean, and back then there wasn't internet. Like they had those little, do you remember those little internet cafes in South oh, yeah, America? Oh, yeah, with the cards, yeah. Right, with the cards. And then it like, takes forever to like open up your Gmail and it's so slow and sometimes it doesn't happen and you're paying by the minute. And uh-huh. that. And and so I d- wasn't even in touch very often. And I'd send a letter home and that, you know, that would take like a month to get back to Canada. And um, But they were always really, really supportive and, and excited about my traveling and and it's funny now like I have you know friends 
um, or colleagues or family members with children that age. And they're, they're saying to me, oh, I'm so worried about her. You know, she's just wanting to take time off and go traveling. And, I, and can you talk to her? And I'm thinking, I need to talk to you yes. because this is really good for her. You know, I don't need to talk to her. Um, so, and it, I just think it's a really important moment in our lives where we have that time and and um freedom of time to really get out there in the world and 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 get out of like our own uh, cultural context and right. and all of the sort of social norms and all the things that we're so used to and and just be in the world and see what's going on and meet different people and it's, it's gaining perspective i couldn't do it when i was um uh in high school but uh, I did it after I moved from Colombia to here but traveling is kind of the gaining perspective about putting yourself in other people's shoes and you understand different realities to me that's what's beautiful and I agree with you conversations need to happen with parents not with the kids the kids <laughs> I know. I'm thinking, just come and talk to me. We'll have coffee because yeah. this is the best thing she could do for herself. Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> the experience for sure. So now, yeah. okay, this is so interesting. You and I are friends, and I didn't know, I knew some of this, but not all. And now no. it's making sense in relation to your research interest. So I was reading your website, and mm -hmm. you describe it as making the influence of social connections visible within the educational and clinical practices of health professionals, which I think is a beautiful description. Oh. So do you think about those experiences as the catalyst of your interest now? Because it sounds to me that you were always looking into experiencing connections with people from different cultures, creating those interpersonal relationships. And now your focus is on making those social connections visible in healthcare. How do you connect those? Yeah, I think that time traveling all around the world and, and being in different cultures and, and working and interacting with other people really did show me the, the sort of thread that binds us all together is connection. Like it's universal and and it's found, you know, all over the world, um, you know, what I think how human beings bring meaning to their life is through connection yeah. and relationship. And so that, that really stood out to me, I think traveling around the world and, and noticing that. Um, but, and so that was more of a, you know, a lived experience, not, not something cognitive that I was processing theoretically, but um, when I started my doctoral work, I worked with um, Victoria Purcell Gates, who'd, she was at UBC, but she'd come from Harvard. Um, she was the director of the graduate education program. And, and um, she, she, she really, really had a strong um, theoretical orientation to the work she did. And she, I remember when the first time I met her, she said, when you work with me, this will be theoretical training. And, you know, I hadn't really been trained at that level yet, but the work she was doing around literacy practices of minority communities um, really took a strong kind of social lens to understand the practices of these different cultural groups. And, mm -hmm. and so we used a lot of different social theories. That's why I've been able to kind of dance around and use a lot of different social theories in my work in the field. Mm -hmm. Like we, we use cultural historical activity theory, um, 
Foucault, Bourdieu, like all kinds of different uh, social theorists. And, um, and she pushed me hard to really work at that level. Um, and, you know, I, at one point, I even kind of wrote a theory for health literacy and went around presenting it. And so I, and I loved it. I realized, like, I, I love so much being in the space of kind of abstraction. And I was surprised how much I it resonated with me. And I just would read all of these kind of primary the theoretical texts sort of deeply and, and really dig into them. And I was just almost kind of enthralled with the experience. And then when I came into our field, it was like I, 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 I've from the, from the beginning have, you know, even in my job talk, talked about that's what I'd like to do is focus on the social aspects in this environment. And then I've been able to work with so many different people asking really interesting questions that are um, like sometimes hidden that we don't talk about or taboo mm -hmm. or just need more illumination or a different way of understanding an expanded way. Um, and so, you know, I think it does all fit together really in terms of my life traje trajectory in terms of why I'm bringing that lens to the field. Yeah. Well, when you talked about going into your PhD, and I, I understand how that love for abstraction came during the process of the PhD, because I don't think anybody can anticipate that. No. <laughs> how did you choose or why did you choose your supervisor and your area? What, what was the attraction that you felt? And then magically, well, magically, no, then you found your love for abstraction. But initially, what brought you to her as your supervisor? It was a little bit random. Somebody, I had done my master's degree in health literacy and somebody there at UVic had said, oh, there's there's a, a woman at UBC, a Canada research chair, who's interested in health literacy. And she had been invited to work on a health literacy project at UBC. So there was an interconnection there with a the team and they'd mentioned her. And I'd, I luckily won an award for my master's research. So I, it, drew, it caught her attention, I think, because she, she was really high level and I think had a lot of requests. And I think having that award maybe caught her attention. Okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, and so that's sort of how I became, I, and then I, I just came over to Vancouver and met with her and, and you know, that you know, and you kind of, all the courage is rising up in you and you have to ask the question. It is said at the end of our meeting, would you be interested in supervising me? And she said, yes. And so I thought, oh my gosh, this is like life-changing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then I applied for um, Shirk funding and Michael Smith funding. It's a local funding agency. And I was thinking I won't do a PhD unless I get funding because- right it's just too much it costs too much and and I now and I think back I was maybe being too rigid but luckily I got the funding and so I came over and worked with her yeah okay now I realize that means something you found your love for academics in grade 12 you went to university <laughs> did a master's why a PhD if you were not that academically inclined before that or it was just the love just took off the the love took off um oh. you know I I in my undergrad, I did it in a small community college in Nanaimo, um, and I lived on Gabriel Island. And I, you know, I had a lovely time. I worked in an art gallery, and I did a undergraduate degree in liberal studies, which was um, where we read a lot of classical texts. 
and we we critiqued them and analyzed them and discussed it and I loved it it was just like I could do the degree all over again even now it was just so fascinating all the the we read like Nietzsche and Plato and the Bible and like Virginia Woolf and all kinds of classical European texts and um and I was really yeah I think you know I transformed it might have been maturity or just um, development and growth of self but I really did become somebody who read a lot and was really more academically inclined and curious about the world just like get me out of here like I want to see the world I want to you know explore and and understand what's going on okay cool so then you finish your PhD you did a postdoc at chess and then you became a scientist right that that was the path what took you that route because I guess none of us arrive here well maybe some these days but in the past, like you kind of land in the medical education field. It's not something you had planned. Was the same for you? It was the same. I It was, again, I think really random, like a lot of people in our field, but I saw a job posting to work as a research assistant at CHESS. And this, the study was in the area of congestive heart failure and the, the, the PI um, in the in the job advertisement said they were using with complex adaptive systems theory and genre theory to understand how these teams work and I thought oh my gosh like this is really interesting and I was using social network theory in my research so you know I just thought oh wow I think this would be incredible experience and I didn't know who was on the team it was just an advertisement for chess and um and I went in for an interview with Joanna Bates and Gil Kimmel. And it was a study led by Lorelai Lingard, turned out. And um, and I just hit it off with Joanna in the interview. Like we had a lot of fun. I remember at the end she said, This was so interesting. I thought it's either a good thing or a bad thing, but hopefully I'll hear I'll, <laughs> I'll hear back. And um, and then I joined that study as a research assistant and I I, you know, went into heart uh, congestive heart failure patients' homes all over the province and or greater Vancouver area really and talked to them and I worked um, on the team and I ended up analyzing data and kind of writing my own paper and um, and at the time they had a posting for an assistant professor and they were looking for a qualitative researcher and a social scientist um, and so I applied. I did not know who Kevin, Eva, or Glenn Regeer were and I applied and I went up for the interview. I was about to give birth in two weeks and I went through the interview process um, and I got the job and we we planned that I would start with a postdoc. Like I just had the baby and, and so I start with a postdoc also to get kind of acclimatized into the field. And I worked very closely with Glenn, which of course was an incredible gift. Um, and then I started my tenure trap position and so the rest is history. It's just an incredible, incredibly fortunate and series of events. Yeah, I, I think I have heard those fortunate series of events many times that sometimes I wonder, I wonder if they are like meant to be because like same as you, I came to the field. I don't know. I, people are giving me names and I'm going, I have no idea who those people are. And then you realize, oh, gosh, OK, guess I'm lucky. So <laughs> I have yeah. a curiosity. So now you've been in the community for a while. So you can reflect back maybe a little bit on this, this question is 
What ideas did you have about becoming a scientist in the HPE field that you have found differ from reality? When you came in, what things you had in your mind that you were anticipating and then you realized, oh, it, it's not that way. Um, I think it really surprised me how much mentorship is valued. Like I, I hadn't quite picked that up in other fields I navigated through, but I, yeah, same for you. And I thought, and also I, I love it. I loved it so much. And I thought, I can't believe that this is just so, um, it's so valued in this field, even, even maybe more so than getting a lot of grant dollars. And, and I, that I think is perhaps very unique to our field mm -hmm. and, and a very a special context to be a scientist in. And I really, you know, it surprised me positively. Um, but uh, I, I still just like pinch myself about how incredible that is, that that's like a very uh, dominant value system in our field. And another thing that surprised me, or I wasn't sure about was in my field, field and my doctor was studying literacy studies, there was a lot of kind of div division and antagonism against different, um, like turf wars almost. So there were the cognitivist literacy folks, and then the um, social theorists, literacy folks, and they could not get along. They they actually split into a different conference. Um, they don't cross talk. It's just turf wars. And, oh. and so you know, when I was going up for my interview, I was kind of looking back at um, Glenn and Kevin's backgrounds as cognitive psychologists. And I thought, geez, I hope we'll get along, like, because that's the field that I came from. And, yeah. and then I ended up in this incredibly sophisticated environment that our field has in where we learn from each other. And there's the appreciation of our perspectives. And we kind of stretch each other's way of thinking because we are engaging in crosstalk and so that also pleasantly surprised me and I just think it's too bad that all fields aren't like this and society really because people are falling more and more into these kind of echo chambers and and yielding truths and it's you know getting really divisive Mm -hmm. How do how do you think we can continue cultivating this as the field grows? Because now we have a lot of people. I think it's to keep stretching ourselves, you know. And I think late, you know, now there's there's a really important focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion, and we're we're bringing in more voices of underrepresented groups, um, and um, you know, trying to learn from those perspectives, for example. And I think. I don't think it's a, a narrowing of of perspectives or voices. I think that that the diversification is incredibly important for all of us to keep um, thinking about our work in different ways. And um, and so I I just think it's important to make sure we preserve the spirit that we've um, cultivated. And um, I don't see it being at risk personally right now, but I think that it's just really important that people like us and people that have been in the field for a while make sure that that's the type of environment that's cultivated. And I think we uh, ourselves and others who are more senior have like a responsibility to really protect it. Yeah, well said. So I'm going to start transitioning to what I call the small things in life, uh, <laughs> but I know you're on sabbatical for six months, right? 
Yeah. And I'm not going to ask you about your research in sabbatical. I'm going to ask okay. you, what are you doing or you're looking forward to do that is non-research, non-academic, that now that you're in sabbatical, you will have the time and that my, most people wouldn't know that you are doing? Um. So I've started working again with a really senior yoga teacher that, you know, I felt the last few years, like, going through tenure promotion and having the baby and raising Liam and stuff, I've, I've not had the almost like discipline to work with her. And now I'm getting back. And so I'm working with her again and attending her classes. And she's like, she trains a lot of the teachers in my yoga community. And she's, it's really um, like, I feel like to work with her, I really have to apply myself. So I started doing that again and I'm practicing every day again, which is really nice. Um, and and I love cooking. I'm trying to sort of think up and and you know do more recipes. And I'm spending a bit more time with Liam. And I'm actually going to volunteer in his school for he has like a chef. It's called Chef Smith on Mondays, and they do cooking. So I'm going to go and do that and help with that. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, just having a little bit more time, and um, which I'm really excited about. So. Um, yeah, so I think those are kind of things that are a bit um, different that I'm folding into my days. Yeah. And extremely important. That's the whole point of the sabbatical, kind of mix it up to allow yeah. your brain to breathe, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So now you said you're doing yoga almost every day. What's something you do that gives you a sense of meaning other than yoga? Um, I think just... You know, I've had a year where the uh, last couple of years I've been present when people I really love and care about have been dying, like Joanna Bates, and then my father um, passed away last year. And I think those experiences really emphasized for me the importance of just appreciating the small things in life, um, like just really appreciating having coffee with a friend or seeing a beautiful sunset or like a hummingbird that flies up to the tree on our balcony or um, just like really slowing down and appreciating just those simple things that I think we take for granted when our life is going so fast. Mm -hmm. And it's really those things that I think, you know, bring a lot of meaning to our life, but we're kind of not aware of it. Um, and so I just sort of, yeah, just trying to be more mindful, I guess, is the word and just appreciating the the little things in life and time with my more time with my son and time with my husband and, and more time with my friends, a bit more flexibility and, and um, just being able to kind of um, enjoy the people in my life, but also the, the, the magic of simplicity and, and nature. Mm -hmm. So having said that, what's the most enjoyable moment of the day for you? Um, I think the, the, the most enjoyable moment that brings the light and spark into my life is picking my son up from school. Like, oh, I just love it. Like, I, it's so simple, but just him, how excited he is to see me and, um, and, and just that kind of small moment of joy to like mm -hmm. see him again. So I think that's probably my favorite part of the day that I look forward to all day. Good choice. And, <laughs> and I also love walking my dog smiles. So I, I have this, we got a cute little 
King Charles Cavalier over the pandemic. And I, I also just like love taking him out for walks. I, some people complain about walking their dog, having to walk their dog, but I really love it. It's, it's really nice. And his name is Miles. Miles. <laughs> um, my son named him, but it's really, oh. it, it fits him so much. It's so hilarious. And he's quite famous in our little community here. Like oh. cars drive by and they like, smiles. And he's all over kind of people's Instagrams and the bakery, oh, no like the, the, the um, baker at the bakery always comes out and gives him cookies. And he's got quite a little presence to him. <laughs> You have a famous member of your family. <laughs> we totally do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I guess almost my last question. I have this little deck of cards that I just pick a random question and I ask people at the end of the interview. So this is the one for you. It says, okay. if you could be brilliant in one subject, which, which one would you choose? You cannot choose your research. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> pretty egotistical yeah um I have so much admiration for people who are really good with at music and so I think and I, I I've always wanted to play the cello I took lessons and when I was doing my PhD but I, I you know I was just a total amateur but the kind of like skill and practice and precision and expression of creativity um is it's just incredible to me. Um, and I think if I could be like really brilliant at something that is a, a stretch from reality, it would probably be to be a cellist. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Might be you never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my final question, Laura. You, you said you worked in Ecuador, especially South America. I'm from Colombia. So anything, anything South America just gets me going. I was curious to know, what is one thing that you really enjoy while you live there that you miss from Ecuador in particular? I love how there's music everywhere there. Like there's music blaring out of the restaurants and people's homes and people playing it on little radios on the street. And there's music everywhere. And it feels kind of bleak here when you're down there and then you come, I come back here and, um, and I, 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 that really stands out to me as sort of a visceral memory of being down there. And I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate how it just livens up life. And, and so I miss that a lot. It's really fun. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing. I, I totally relate. So I don't need to comment. on anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Laura, this was extremely enjoyable. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you, Laura. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.